Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juicing the Numbers, your movies and entertainment podcast. I am your host, Joshua Tracy. And I'm Corbin And uh, today, the two movies that we will be discussing are the uh, 2016 picture Moonlight and the 20, sorry, 1978 movie Autumn Sonata. Corwin, are you ready to get into it? I am ready. All right, where do you want to start, buddy? You get a pick. I'm indifferent. Now, that's not a choice. So I will pick for you, <laughs> and we will we will start with Moonlight uh, for no good reason. Uh, Moonlight is a 2016 film written and directed by Barry Jenkins. Wow, was that really 2016 already? I know, like, it feels it's so that recent. long ago. I know. Granted, it was at the 2017 Oscars that it like had won its three Oscars, but still, like, yeah, it came out in 2016, which feels insane. Um, anyway, it won three Oscars: Best Motion Picture of the Year, Best Performance yeah. by an Actor in Supporting Role for Mahershala Ali, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Barry Jenkins and Terrell Alvin McCraney. It was also nominated for several more awards including best performance by an actress in a supporting role from naomi harris best achievement in directing by Bar- for barry jenkins best achievement in cinematography for james laxon and then best achievement in editing for joy mcmillan and nat sanders as well as best achievement in music written for motion pictures original score for nicholas Brattel. so lots of nominations three wins and three rather important categories so an excellent showing um it, it won best picture i thought la la land won oh <laughs> Topical humor. Hey, uh, it has an esti- had an estimated budget of four million dollars. Its cumulative worldwide gross was sixty five million dollars, sixty five point three. So, definitely a hit uh, mm-hmm. for sure. This is an A twenty four production, and one of the first A twenty four movies I remember being um, a one a huge success, and two being like from A twenty four, a very. Uh, I guess now they're a very big time mm-hmm. or at least prestigious uh, independent film production company. Or at least do you remember? Do you remember the first film that you were like, "Oh, this is a twenty-four. What is a twenty-four? Like, do you remember what the first time, like, the first film was that like brought that to your attention? Honestly, for me, I think it is Moonlight because, like, it's one of those things where, like, I don't really pay attention much to the production and distribution companies that come before the opening credits of the film. Like, right. I remember, I remember like noticing Monkey Paw for um, who is that? Um, Jordan Peele. For us, I didn't even realize it was in front of um, his previous film, Get Out. So I, because because I was paying attention to it, because at that point I, I I was I had heard it more mentioned that like Monkey Paw is Jordan Peele's company, um, and I hadn't. I, I'm sure if I looked through A24's repertoire of films i'm going to recognize a lot more of them from uh or i'm going to recognize several from before uh 2016 but i this was the first movie i was like oh this is a24 yeah i always i always noticed legendary productions or legendary pictures um like before movies because they advertise on the steelers practice uniforms really so like that's just something i always notice um, but mid '90s was the first one where it was like, "Oh, this is by something called A24." What is that? Um, eight, you know, mid '90s is probably my favorite A24 film uh, to this day. Um, I, it's always one that I think about 
having us review, but it's like, no, I I want to keep this one for myself. I don't want to have to talk about it. So good yeah, choice. A little non sequitur. Uh, so apparently A24's movies started coming out in 2013. I have actually seen three of them. Um, the movies that came out in 13, A Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III, never seen it. Ginger and Rosa, never seen it. And then the three that I did see, Spring Breakers, The Bling Ring, and The Spectacular Now. Um, I've, actually seen a, I've actually seen a decent number of these movies, most of which I did not realize were A24. Um, like I've seen a lot of these movies, uh, which is weird. But also cool, like Ex Machina, twenty fifteen. Yeah. Um, just to mention, mention a few of the bigger ones. Um, End of the Uncut tour. Big, I saw that. Yeah, okay. I'm trying to think of just trying to see movies that came out before this. Oh, The Witch. Uh, gotcha. I saw that too. You mean the Witch? Yes, the Witch. Um, also the Lobster, the Palma. Yeah, there's a lot of these. Anyway, that's not the point. Uh, we're not talking about that. Uh, Moonlight is about. Uh, it's a movie told in three pieces. Uh, at different points in a young man's life about his um, one taking place in his early childhood. Uh, I'll say elementary school years, I believe one taking place in his teenage years and one playing taking place in his, I'll say um, young adult years. It seems like his late twenties ish. Yes. Somewhere um, in the twenties. Yeah. But you know, still, you know, a young man for what, for how long that period of uh, your life takes place. Mm-hmm. Uh, as he tries to identify who he is in the world and um, his sexuality, which is a really big part of this film. Corwin, what do you think, or what did you think of Moonlight? Um, I really liked it. I thought it was a... You know, I will say, I talk about this a lot on here, about how I prefer narrative-driven stories rather than, you know, uh, movies that are more about, you know, bringing out a certain feeling or emotion. And at first I was like, well, this, you know, doesn't have a very strong narrative structure. And then the farther along in it I got, it was like, well, I think I'm wrong. I think this does have uh, a very strong narrative arc. And it's really just more of a an introspective, almost uh, a character story than it is a story. I don't want to say story, story, but you know what I mean by that. Just uh, yeah, it's not necessarily plot driven. There's plots right. for different for the three different parts, but it's not necessarily driven by that. You know, it, it was something I I really enjoyed. Uh, the I I'm going to need help just making sure I got this right. But Mershala, Mershala, Mahershala, Mahershala, Mahershala Ali. Um, I loved his character. Uh, I really wish he had more time in this film more screen time just because I thought he was almost deserving of being the leading man with how much I appreciated both his character, the actions his character was taking and the connection he had with, um, Sharon. Yeah. Um, I, I really loved it. You said he was nominated, but didn't win the best, uh, actor in a supporting role. No, I believe he, I've, I closed the tab, but he actually, I believe, did win. This was his first of two wins. I think he also won for uh, Hidden Figures. Yes, he did win for this. Understandable. Uh, love that. You know, I, I don't have the other nominees in front of me, but without looking at that, just seeing his performance in here, despite having a, a relatively very short runtime or appearance, you know, in the film, uh, I thought his character was tremendous and deserving. Yeah, short, um, but very impactful. Yeah, uh, I will say, you know, it's a 
very clear three act structure. They literally have title cards for each act. Um, the first two acts I loved, um, but I think each one got progressively less interesting for me as the movie went on. Uh, the third act, you know, compared to the first two, I didn't really care for all that much. Uh, we can get into that. Um, absolutely adored the first one. The second one showed just just beautiful development uh, and how he grew up with the different factors in his life and everything that was going on. Um, but again, just uh, Mershala not having him there was uh, you know sad. And um, just the biggest gripe I have is that we don't get any insight into what happened to his character. Um, we kind of know how he, spoiler alert, passes. We know that he passes. We just don't know what caused it, what it was from, you know, whatever it may be. I kind of inferred that it had something to do with the fact that he was a drug dealer. Um, but other than that, yeah, not not much there. How about you? Oh, I love this movie. This is this is such an up my alley kind of movie. Um, I love movies that grapple with identity and emotion mm-hmm. and try to explore some part of being a person. Um, because it's such a difficult thing to, I think, accurately portray on screen. Because when you think of like what it means to work on identification of oneself or how to express the human experience like it's that's a that's a tough visual it's much easier in books which is why oftentimes we hear ah that movie is so much worse than the book or that book so much better than the movie because there's so much missing it's a common gripe with stephen king novels because they're very um internal and while there's an external universe in like every stephen king book it usually plays backseat to what's going on within um just as an example this movie, I think, just does such an excellent job of portraying in in three acts, in three stages, um, in three different versions of a life, w- what this one young man goes through and the transformations he takes in. All three parts are so different at the same time as being so similar, similar. which is such a corny thing to say. But, I mean, it's true. I mean, these three pieces fit together narratively so well by being really um just their own deal entirely the third one most starkly different the first two uh because the age gap between being a teenager and being what again i'm gonna say is somewhere like the seven maybe seven ish year old age um that's we're talking like you know anywhere between six and nine years for act one to act two whereas we're talking anywhere between Oh man, um, ten to fifteen years between Act Two and Act Three, so uh, that by far is the most different, especially with what older Sharon is going through at that point in his time, in, in time and in his life. But the examination of what's probably a rather underrepresented group with um, homosexual black men, especially uh, a, a topic not often discussed, although I'm sure rather close to Barry Jenkins' heart as as um i believe that he is gay and that this in some way is probably representative of a little bit of what he dealt with going growing up in terms of his emotional expression um i think it handles it very tastefully um i thought i really like that it wasn't the focal point of his struggles i really like that it was more of a institutional there was a lot more factors that he was facing with it you know 
issues with his mother, issues with people at school, issues with fitting in. And they were all things that were, you know, at the forefront in the first act. And then, you know, it's mentioned the fact that he could be gay in the first part, but it isn't something that's the focal point in the movie. And it's it's something that comes out in the second part. It's hinted at here, it's hinted at there, and then finally at the end of it, it it's revealed uh, officially. And I like that this wasn't just a, man, it's tough being gay, you know, growing up story, because that's been done so many times before. Uh, right, this, yeah. This, no. The Sorry, sum of all parts is the struggle, not just this aspect of it. Right, and I think I really hit the nail on the head with that. I, I think that's one of the biggest strengths of this film is that it is an accurate representation of a complete person. It's not just mm-hmm. about the struggle. Uh, yeah, just you really hit the nail on the head with it, buddy. That was perfect. Oh, thank um, you. I feel like that's so rare. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it, 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 part of it's because of like the context or the purview that the, that this film oversees. You know, like this is a pretty tough part of town that. Sharon grows up in. I believe, if I recall from when this movie came out, um, a, if I'm recalling correctly, one of the stories was that they had to have um, locals of the part of town that they shot in for the first part and security because people would try to mug them in broad daylight in the middle of the street while they were filming, which is ridiculously insane. Yeah, also, especially, like, you know, with all the production around, it's very clear that these aren't just like. Normal people standing around. Yeah, and and they needed people to be like, nah, nah, like th- th- you know, there's a whole thing going on here, man. Like, please don't mug us. Yeah. Um, and like, and you that comes across in the film, mm-hmm. you know, like it it's clearly that that type of place. Um, and it's clearly a type of story that's going to involve, like you said, just a sum of all the parts of what it means to be a person. Um, and I just I loved how raw it was too, like. The emotions that he was feeling, the way it was presented, it wasn't a, you know, this wasn't a, a story where, oh, he faces these troubles, he meets this mentor, he learns how to deal with them, he builds on that, and he becomes a better, complete person at the end. This is this was very raw, and this is how growing up with these struggles, these handicaps almost, it, this is how real people grow, and these, this is how real people develop, and there's a lot of emotion there that's just left out in the open. It's just the rawness is what stuck out to me. Oh, very much so. I mean, what would you pick as being the um, strongest part to you of the first part, the first act? Um, the realization of Little, which is uh, Sharon's name at the time, uh, well, nickname. Yeah. Uh, his realization that his mom is a drug addict and the closest thing he has to a father figure is the one selling her the drugs and is, you know, almost the reason why his life is in the state it is in. And that I don't, I didn't really put this into a, this was one of my notes, but I didn't have a chance to really perfect how I wanted to word this, but that realization that there isn't, the people in his life all there there isn't no any perfect figure for him to look up to and that he doesn't have that perfect role model like we're led to believe with uh Juan uh Marshall Ali's character 
uh, we're led to believe that's who he's going to be. But at the end of the day, he's just another cog and another reason why his life is in the state it's in. Yeah. Um, I was going to pick the, the mother as well. I'm going to refine it just a little bit. Just, just seeing really what that life, even if there wasn't any point to be really taken away in, in the way that you very adeptly described, um, even just, just as, as, as a glimpse into what that reality certainly looks like anyway of um, living in that kind of condition with that kind of person, you know, is it's really startling um, and, and really gives it the, the raw feeling that you've been describing. What would you say for the second part, the second act? Um, I would say it's his, the relationship he has with other people. And again, how in the first act, it, it shows that he doesn't have any role models, no figures in his life that he could look up to and, you know, build his life around. The second act kind of shows how the people he even considers friends aren't people he can trust wholeheartedly. People he has, you know, close, intimate relations with, you know, the only person they show is, you know, being close with him. The only person he considers a friend is the one who, in the end, betrays him. Um, And just the feeling that when you live in this part of society, this, uh, this area of the world, you're on your own. You know, even the people you think you can trust aren't always dependable. Um, and I thought that was a, a very hard-hitting fact, hard-hitting piece of reality. Again, I think it's a great choice. I will pick a smaller scoped item because, again, you took the, the big fun one. I'll say the, the very end of that part where um, Chiron finally like kind of fights back when he like just storms into the classroom and, and, and smashes that chair over Terrell's head um so satisfying it is it's it's one of those where it's so satisfying and it's also so sad because you're looking at it like oh fuck man like i get it and i i in some in a different movie i wanted you to do that but like you have nothing and now you're gonna have even less because like bye bye to juvie for you you know um it's it's the it's that it's a level of emotion that you just really hadn't seen from him through the entirety of the first two parts as of yet. He's been uh, very meek, you know, very calm, very quiet, a kind of, not even just kind of a literal pushover in many ways, and and then it comes to a head, which eventually will tie into the beginning of of part three of this movie. But it really is such a such a one instance leading to what is a colossal uh, turn of uh, uh, turning of turning point in his life in mm-hmm. that, that one little smashing of chair overhead. It's, it film. was essentially like it was the most necessary piece of character growth. Like, you know, you wanted to see him develop that backbone, develop that ability to stand up for himself and just the way it happened, the way he did it, it, you are happy that it happened, but you're devastated in the way it happened because you know, yeah, he grew as a person, but man, he set himself back so far. Yeah, because he he had uh, he had no one there with him, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then give me give me what you think for uh, for part three. What's your moment for for act three? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll say again, I I definitely liked Act Three the least. Um, I liked the Sharon in Act Three the least by far. Um, I didn't like the person he had become. You know, he kind of took that and the the defining moment in Act Two where he stood up for himself, and that's what he ran with. You know, he put on massive amounts of muscle, was able to stand up for himself, was able to have his own, I don't want to say his own voice, but um, be independent where, you know, he wasn't afraid of anyone else, but he kind of just, he turned into someone that wasn't necessarily the best person he could have been. Um, And, you know, I'll take the, the easy one again, where, seeing him finally be able to open up to Kevin again and rekindle that relationship where he was able to have someone he could connect to and open up to and just have someone else in his life to not necessarily depend on right away, but be vulnerable to. Um, And it was after going through, you know, act three and kind of being on edge about where his path was going, who had who he had become. Um, it was refreshing to see that at the end of the film, he was in a place where he could grow um, and he could get back to the right path he should be on. I, I agree. It's tough to pick apart for, for this. Um, and I, I also agree that, yeah, the, it, in part it's tough because the, the, the Chiron of the first or black as he goes by in, in, right. uh, in this part is by far the least likable version of uh, his character represented in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's, I, I, I wonder, no, I wonder, I'm assuming in his mind, he's kind of like a Juan style character, a Mahershala Ali style right. character where, you know, now he's like a drug dealer. And like, that's who Juan was when he was a kid. That's the guy he looked up to, but he's even drives his car. Yeah. But at the same time, like he's also, he's, he's not, you know, Mm-hmm. Mahershala one of the one of the great things that Mahershala Ali brought to his part was a almost a remorse in mm-hmm. not even almost I would say absolutely a remorse in what he was doing it was a reality of of life and the situation he was in not something he was proud of really seemingly at all um you know Mahershala Ali kicks his mother out of the car at some point or um or at least tells her to to take better care of a kid um Probably the most emotional part was when Mahershala finally admitted to Little at the time that he was the drug dealer and just seeing the pain in his face as he did that uh, and knowing, you know, he was hurting Little and the actions he'd taken and the life he had chose was causing this young person's life to be so significantly worse than what it should be. That That was probably my favorite scene in the entire movie. That it's dining room table scene. Yeah. No, it's, it's, oh, it's such a good scene. But Black or Charon or, or however we want to refer to him in, in part three, he didn't grow up to be that. He's found, I guess, some level of power in authority as well as coupled with what he thinks of as, a, as an ideal man from some, some aspects of his childhood. And he's just an asshole. Um, up until he gets that call from from Kevin, and then he goes to the diner, which I think the sequence at the diner is probably my favorite sequence. I'm not going to pick 
a specific moment, just the slow softening of the character, kind of back to the more meek and mild person that he was in the uh, first like two and a half parts of this film. When you see just the slow, or you know, like the the rugged demeanor slowly dissipate into the more fragile person beneath, um, I'll pick out that moment in particular, or at least that 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 set of scenes that sequence for myself. Um, but I love this movie. I think it's such such a great movie. I think it accomplishes everything it was trying to. Um, big win for me in my book. Definitely uh, glad it won over La La Land. Yeah, and you know what? I actually like La La Land. I'm going to fully admit it. I think it's a. I I know exactly what it is, but like <sighs> I think it's fun. At the same time, it should not have won Best Picture, <laughs> and no. it didn't. So I'm glad it didn't. Um, I, uh, I just did, but I do like La La Land. <laughs> I could not get past the first scene of La La Land. I, I think I've tried to sit down and watch it twice, um, but I I do not enjoy musicals, uh, especially that. That joyously optimistic musical, it just was like, I'm too cranky of a person. Uh, I just couldn't get through it. So I'm definitely glad uh, this one over La La Land, despite, you know, I'm sure La La Land was a tremendous movie. But, uh, uh, it, definitely it, not there for me. It's fun. I, I grew up on, you know, like Jim Kelly and Fred, or sorry, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire movies. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I kind of grew up with that um, to some extent. The only part of it that I really can't stand that really gets me every time I watch it. And I go, why did you make this choice? Is that uh, Ryan Gosling's character teaches um, uh, John Legend's character about jazz. Like the, 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 the white man shouldn't be teaching the black man about jazz. It's so <laughs> problematic in so many ways. Um, and he's such a bitch while he does it too. Like, fuck you. Shut the fuck, <laughs> get off your fucking high horse. But yeah, Ryan Gosling's character is everything that's wrong about music, <laughs> but I like. Holiday Bay. Um, I like the movie, but anyway, yeah. Uh, give me, give me your 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 star rating for Moonlight. Um, I still have some more notes here that I want to talk oh, about. Shit. Yeah, I'm yeah, not absolutely. done yet, motherfucker. Give me the rest of your um, notes. My first note was that the stranger danger levels in this first scene um, were out of like off the charts. Just. A man rolling into a crack den, tearing down the walls, stepping in, and finding a child and going, hey, kid, want to go for a ride? Was just like, <laughs> goddamn, like, I get the situation is, like, calling for that, and it's very necessary, but, like, this dude kidnaps a little kid and, like, takes him to his house overnight. And I, I'm fully aware that there's no alternative to this in reality, but, like, damn, that's just the first thing that jumped out. Oh yeah, it's um, crazy. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, Janelle Monet is fucking perfect, and I love her to death. I know she's amazing in everything she's ever done. I love her. Uh, um, I was waiting for an Omar cameo from The Wire, just like a gay drug dealer who's struggling with his self identity in you know, quote unquote, the ghetto. I was like, okay, I get there in partially Atlanta, partially Miami. I know Baltimore is not that close, but like Omar, where you at? Just please make a cameo, even if it's just like in the background. Um, all right, but, all right. Uh, yeah, cinematography was perfection. Off the fucking charts, loved it. The, uh, just unbelievable. The score was very, very good. Um, 
And yeah, that's uh, my last note is that it's definitely better than La La Land. So those are my notes. You're right. <laughs> you're, you're you're right. It is. <laughs> uh, perfect, maybe. I have nothing else I really want to say. I think we covered a lot of ground. Awesome. Uh, so now I will ask you for a second time. What? Oh, Josh, I have so, mu- so many more notes I have to cover. No, I'm kidding. Really? Oh, I give you. it. Uh, I give this a four out of five. Not not quite perfect. Not quite five out of five material, but close enough. Where uh, you know, I have some issues with the third act. I'm sure with time I'll grow to appreciate the intricacies of that more and more. But first watch, fresh out of uh, watching it for the first time, four out of five. Yeah, I always struggle with this because when you. Like this movie is, I think, just so incredibly well done, um, and I love it to pieces. And there's something that just I don't know. I don't know what it is in my head that separates a movie from being a four point five, four and a half out of five to a five point five. Maybe it's it's gravitas, or maybe it's just some intangible. I I, I, I can't put a finger on. Yeah, some something weird like that. Um, so I am going to give it a four and a half out of five because I just. Oh, I love this movie so much, and I, I think mm-hmm. everyone in the world should watch it. Um, I don't have a reason for why I'm taking off a half a star. It's just, it's just how I feel. Right. I feel like for me, four and a half is a movie that you have no complaints about, but a five is a movie that is perfect. You know, like a four and a half. There's nothing inherently wrong with it, but it doesn't have that X factor that puts it over the top for me. Um, there are a handful of things I would like to, you know, be seen done differently in this. And that's why I'm not giving it a four and a half. Um, but yeah, both of those I consider, I would consider near perfect movies, uh, you know, those ratings. So yeah, it's just one of those things. Right on. Then, uh, you ready to talk about Autumn Sonata? I am. You don't sound Boy. excited. Well, man, I had... <laughs> If you asked me to review this movie after watching the first five minutes, I would have had some horrible things to say about it. But, well, you know what? I'll just jump into it. Hold on. Let, me, th- let, me, let me read out the basic okay. info, yeah, you're right, you're and then, right, you're then right. I'll just jump in. All right. <laughs> um, Autumn Sonata is a 1978 picture written and directed by Ingmar Bergman, uh, starring Ingrid Bergman and Liv Ullman as the, the, the mother-daughter combo that dominate the majority of the screen time in this film. Uh, it was nominated for two Oscars, not taking home either. It was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role for Ingrid Bergman and Best Writing uh, for Ingmar Bergman. The only time these two actually work together, which is hilarious. Ingrid Bergman, this is also her final picture, and she got the chance to do it in her native language, which is really cool. Um, you might best know her from Casablanca, which is my, one of my favorite movies. I don't have an estimated budget for it anywhere, but I do have that its cumulative worldwide gross was $14,338, which is not a lot and just like can't be right. <laughs> but at the same I, time, like, what am I supposed to? I can't argue. So I get there's like inflation issues there and maybe some currency exchange rates that are fucking with the numbers here, but like $14,000 is such a small amount of money. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to say it's a combination of inflation and the fact that movie theater ticket prices have almost certainly outpaced inflation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not a lot. I put it in a um, my inflation calculator and it's reading that that would be a gross today of $55,425, which is just so not Yikes. a lot. 
That's like, like one major movie theater, I feel like, for like a Star Wars movie. Yeah, if even that, that might even be low for, for one, depending on the theater, I guess, maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're going to move past that. The basic story here is that a uh, uh, Ingrid Bergman is a, uh, uh, a mother to, to Liv Ullman, and uh, she comes to visit for the first time in seven years, and they hash out um, their, uh, their past uh, Liv Ullman's childhood. So Corwin, why don't you why don't you tell me what you thought? Um, the first five minutes of this movie, uh, basically when the husband is uh, having his monologue about his wife, and they're talking about the letter they're sending, and just all the exposition backstory lead up to you know when Ingrid Bergman's character gets there, I was horrified that I was about to spend an hour and a half watching a Hallmark made-for-TV movie. Um, just the way it was shot, the way the characters were, you know, speaking. It's like, okay, this would be one thing, but I also have to read this movie that's in Swedish the whole time. I was just devastated that I had to watch this. It's so I funny because, like, I agree. It's a, I, I'm sorry, I cut you off. It's, I forget that scenes in the movie every mm-hmm. time I watch this movie because <laughs> it's... It doesn't fucking matter. And like that's like the, the very first scene, the very last scene are like the only two times plus he has one other scene. Mm-hmm. But like the only two times that husband's in the movie like fucking at all. And I constantly forget about him. I was fully ready. Like I was preparing the text I was about to send you, like, seriously, two weeks in a row, you're picking movies that I just don't want to watch and want to turn off immediately. Um, you're oh for two, buddy, you're one strike away from three strike strikeout. I just can't with you. Um, but I was like, you know what? He's going to get so upset if I do that. I'm just going to watch it and hold it for the podcast in like two hours. Uh, Cause I literally just stopped watching this, you know, 10 minutes before we started recording the podcast, not even. Um, and then Ingrid Bergman shows up and I was captivated. You know, I forget how good of an actress she was throughout her career because I don't watch that era of movies regularly. You know, I've seen Casablanca once, you know, um, maybe twice. It's just, I prefer modern cinematography, modern editing, the modern style of movies. So I don't dip back into her old catalog, but my God, once she started talking and giving her first monologue and just the emotion she was portraying, just the way she was describing her last moments with her husband, and just the pain you could feel in her eyes and in her voice. You know, I couldn't even understand the words she was saying. She's speaking in Swedish, but I can feel that pain. And then as soon as she's done, she flips into this positive attitude talking about, you know, oh, do I look the same? Have I changed? Oh, look at this dress. It's beautiful. I just bought it. I was just taken away and just ready to be swept away into this magical world of a movie. And then it get just the emotion throughout this movie. It was amazing watching these two actresses go back and forth. Um, it, it was incredible, truly incredible. And and back and forth they go. I mean, my God. So I, I'm sure that of, of all the movies in the world, um, people listening to this probably haven't seen this one just because it's a foreign film from the 70s. And like, what are the odds? Um, Ingrid Ingmar Bergman is a very, very renowned uh, filmmaker. He was nominated in his the course of his lifetime for nine Oscars, never won a single one of them, which is a goddamn shame, because um, mm-hmm. he is brilliant. And this is not his most famous film, but it's my 
tied for being my favorite along with Fanny and Alexander, which is very, very long, and I was not going to do that to you. Um, but this, it, all his, all of his movies to some extent, um, have a feeling like this. It's a lot of dialogue and it's a lot of examination into thoughts and feelings, but it's done so in just this ridiculous way. Um, such as, uh, the way these two talk to each other and, and the way that they, they're constantly bringing up different events in their lives and addressing their different concerns and the different perspectives on what had happened and how these points in their lives had gone and what these different things mean to them. And with the, the constant changing of the delivery between screaming and crying and whispering, I mean, it's, it's, it's a roller coaster. And mm-hmm. I figured if there was ever a movie that dealt with feelings and emotions that I could get you to get behind, it's this one. Because, my God, it like this from the second Ingrid Bergman shows up, it does not stop mm-hmm. until she leaves. Um, wow. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's almost like every scene she, she's in, there's just this, uh, this force behind the way she speaks. And I couldn't fully decide whether or not I was supportive of this character or I, I didn't know how to feel about her until the very end of the movie. And even now talking about it, I don't know whose side I should be on. If there is a side to be on just, there's just so much emotion and just pure heartfelt. Just, I I don't even know how to describe it. I really don't. It's just such a powerful movie. And I have, I wrote so many notes about it uh, or on my notepad about it because I, I just, Oh my God. I just kept thinking of, of all these different things. Um, so the, the, the setup for the film, um, as Corwin said, it's not very interesting. Um, luckily it's brief. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, um, it's Liv Ullman, who I love Liv Ullman. Um, she's a phenomenal Swedish actress, if you get the chance. Um, she's in like all of Ingrid Bergman's, Ingmar Bergman's films. Um, they were definitely fucking. But <laughs> anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, anyway, the husband's portion of the beginning of this film, it's, it, it's boring. But it sets up this stage that here we have this woman who is in a marriage that she seems happy with, but has outwardly expressed to her husband that like she doesn't love him because she doesn't think she's capable of love uh, and and then that's just who she is mm-hmm. and so you you have this woman that's right off the bat struggling with who she is as a person he reads some of her writing and it's very self-reflective about what it means to to know oneself and stuff like that um and 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 he recounts stories about how she's said to him that she doesn't love him but you know here she is married to him and they had a kid together. And that's one of the things that really drove me crazy when we get to Ingrid Bergman talking about um Leo, her I don't want to say husband, I want to say partner. I'm not sure if they were ever married or not. Anyway, her her partner who died seemingly from the movie like a day ago. Um Yeah, it was a very weird timeline. Yeah. Which just adds to the whole sociopathy of her character. Um, mm. But she describes this this great, huge, loving feeling. How how much of a bond the two of them had. You know, we'd um, 
I think they said they she they've been together for 13 years and lived together for eight and never had a mean word for each other, never fought. They were happy as clams, and she stayed by his bedside and nurtured him, cared for him, and and stayed with him after he had died, just sat with the body for all night. And all of these feelings of of love that she had had from deep, burning love that she'd had for him. And here's Liv Ullman's character, who, again, just from exposition, but that we know, who, based on eventually what we get to, as uh, our understanding is being from uh, her childhood dealing with her mother, is incapable of love, having to listen to her mother talk about all the love that she has for this other guy. She's never been able to feel herself and has never felt from her mother in the way that she has felt for this this man that she knew for a, a long time, 13 years, but that she couldn't express to her own daughter. And that's just in the first, like, 10 minutes. Yeah. Um when we get to the the ultimate climactic scene where she finally unleashes all that emotion that you can kind of tell from the start of the movie she is holding back um you know you don't realize how much is held back you know how much is being reserved but you can tell that the way she feels towards her mother is not exactly how she is expressing it and you can see it's a very quiet contemplation throughout where she picks and chooses her words very carefully. She is very concerned about her mother's um, ultimate approval and what she thinks. And when we finally get to the point where, you know, the, the powder keg is just lit, everything between the both of them come out and it's just, it's like watching a fireworks display with just everything that's going off left and right. And, you know, there's, I don't know how to describe it. There's almost a, you know, a, a, a storyline and a B storyline, the A storyline being their conversation downstairs and everything uh, that they're discussing. And then the B storyline is both, uh, her husband listening in and just kind of being like, yo, I'm not fucking about to get involved with this. I'm out. Uh, and then the, the sister, the other daughter who, you know, is handicapped to some extent that, you know, isn't exactly, uh, shared, uh, struggling to some degree and unable to reach out and get their attention because they're so engulfed in this argument between the two. It's just, it's such a dialogue heavy movie and more so than really any other movie you see nowadays, but it's so captivating at the same time where I found myself rewinding often because the, what they were saying was so important that I would get distracted by, you know, the emotions on their face and just little things. And I've refused to miss even a single word of it. Um, just nonstop captivation, and, and that and the uh, you're right. It's it's the dialogue is so rich. I had to stop myself from writing down um, quotes uh, because I could have just written down the whole fucking movie. I mean, the the ideas that they're conveying to each other and the the, the manner in which they're doing it. It's just and the complexity. Oh my god! It's it's ridiculous. And I have. 
the, the I have just, almost sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say, and and the small actions that the, each of them were taking as as they were doing these things, or mm-hmm. or the gestures, especially from from Ingrid Bergman that she was partaking in between the dialogue. It's just so it just building so subtly, but but clearly building who these characters are as people. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just sorry. What were you gonna say? I was just so captive. I have almost no notes written down by this movie because I just. I didn't want to look away or, you know, stop focusing on it at any point. Like even pausing it, I felt was interrupting this performance and just, I, I had to see it through before I could pause and have a break to really compose my thoughts. And by I, the time I got through it, it was just like, I'm just at a loss of words. I don't even know what to say here. Yeah. I, once, once it got into the, once they were both downstairs um, in the middle of the night, and they began what was going to be like the, the big climactic um, unleashing of all emotions is when I stopped taking notes because mm-hmm. you're, yeah, I didn't want to miss a fucking second of it. And I've seen this movie several times and I, I can't tear my eyes away from it. It's, it's, oh, love it. Um, a few moments that I think are very indicative of who at least Ingrid Bergman are. The first one, so uh, Corwin mentioned this, Helena, which is uh, Liv Ullman's sister's name in this film. Uh, is handicapped in some way that it's not fully clear. Although it doesn't really matter. Helena is more of a metaphor than anything else. Um, she there's this whole discussion, you know, like uh, Liv Ullman was like, "You, uh, Helena's here," and Ingrid Bergman was like, "Why didn't you tell me?" And Liv Ullman was like, "Cause you wouldn't have fucking come." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and Ingrid Bergman was like, "Yes, I would have." And she was like, "Whatever." <laughs> um, and so she goes to go visit her crippled daughter who can like barely talk, and. Um, she gives her her watch. Ingrid Bergman gives this very handicapped daughter of hers who only wants love and affection because she cannot move at least very, very much or very far and can barely speak and has not seen her mother for seven years uh, is looking for just a little bit of love and affection and instead gets a watch. What I the knew fuck? there was some symbolism there. I just did not know enough about this movie or the characters or the story enough to even begin to piece that together. And even even now, it's like, I don't feel confident enough to even put my finger on it, you know? It, uh, it, it, it's just this, this, this thing where it's like, Ingrid Bergman seems so incapable of expressing genuine emotion to these two girls that are... Not strangers, they're her literal fucking daughters. And that's where the well, thing that still makes me so mad. They kind of are strangers. That's kind of, you know. Oh, well, this is true. Part. This is th- th- that is very true. Um but then that's the thing that makes me so mad about the, her her whole Leo monologue talking about his death because it's so beautiful. And her here's her a, a chance to do something rather similar with it with her actual daughter. Sit by her bedside and you know, talk to her when she can, when, when, when the daughter's awake and help give her meals and, and call nurses and, and, and be there, just be in the room. And she couldn't be in there for five fucking minutes. And she was so confused as to what to do in that situation that all she could think to do is give a material gift to a person who has zero use for it. No need for time in their life whatsoever. No. And you see it again, this idea of gifting material objects and and using money as a display of affection, which is not the way that's supposed to be done. You see it later on when, um, when, when Ingrid Bergman's character is literally counting her own money. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, what am I supposed to do with all this money? Oh, I know. I'll buy them a car. And it's like, oh, she oh that scene killed me. Oh, I know. She Just like, oh, wow, she's doing something nice. Like something that like the family could use. It's a clear need because she mentioned, you know, the shape of the car that it was in and being able to travel and do something nice for everyone involved. That's great. And then it's like, now I'll give them my used car and I think I'll buy myself a new one. Mm, then I'll be able to go on this trip to Paris. Excellent. Now I can sleep soundly. Oh, it killed me. I uh, I loved the line that um, that Liv Ullman had about her mother, where it was like, um, "God's God gave my mother insomnia to reduce her um, her uh, oh, what's the word she used? I think it was um, energy. So, yeah, something like that. Because without it, she'd be she'd have too much for the world to bear, or some shit like that." Talking about how how the insomnia is the only thing that slows her mother down enough to be remotely bearable, and she mentioned hilarious. that at a she mentioned that in a at the point in the movie where like we didn't quite we didn't know the feelings that she had for her mother, and we didn't cr- quite see who you know the real person the mother was. But when you look back at the line and see what she really meant, it's like oh that makes that's a perfect perfect uh you know uh, what's the term I'm looking for. Um, Anal- idiom analogy. I'm not yeah. sure. Analogy. I, 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 I know what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where, like, like that first when when um, Ingrid Bergman's character is getting ready for dinner, and uh, Liv Ullman's character is helping set the table for dinner, um, and Liv Ullman is describing what must what is likely going through Ingrid Bergman's head as she's getting ready. That that scene is definitely like expressing some distaste for her mother. And general, general like dislike for maybe some of her attributes, but yeah, it's it's a little bit early in the film for you to fully get it. But like the, the I, that's one of my notes, like like just the the mind games and like the the political maneuvering around this relationship with again, what should be a loved one, isn't ridiculous. Like she's talking, she's like talking about how her mother is going to pick her dress to um, best emphasize how she's feeling that day about like how she's. Not rem- uh, she was going to she's going to wear something lovely to show that she's a she's more than just a grieving widow or something like that, and uh, she was like breaking down the psychology of her mother's dress choice, which is again on at that point in the movie, definitely expressing some level of contempt for at least that part of her mother. But like as it goes on, you really see that like just how deep there uh, these these displeasures run. Yeah, like well, one of the few notes I have is just um <laughs> quote, my goodness, these two need to find a healthy way to express this pent up emotion. Both need serious serious help, and this is not healthy. Oh, um, yeah, uh it was stunning the way these two both exploded at each other. Um mm. so what did you think of the uh piano playing scene? Uh, For reference, just real quick, in in this film, um, a, a, a main point is that Ingrid Bergman's character is a concert pianist who tours very regularly, playing piano all over seemingly the world, and um, uh, her daughter has a piano in the house that she sometimes plays on. I felt like uh, Eva basically is, you know, just the way I, I took it is she's scared to play in front of her mother, but 
she wants that satisfaction. She wants that um, level of, I don't know if acceptance, but she wants her mother to almost be proud of her, whatever it may be. And then she plays, her mother likes it. It's not the way, like she's fully content with the way she played it. She thought she did a good job. And she knows that it's just a different interpretation than what she has. And she's trying to express that. The daughter just doesn't really accept that as a complete answer and know that. And she wants to know her mother's interpretation because she wants to be able to play that and make her happy by doing so and understanding that. Um, And at the time, I thought, okay, you know, the mother here is clearly, you know, this is a good move. This is a, a good motherly way of, you know, being like, hey, that was a great job. Don't think that your interpretation of it is wrong. There's many ways to interpret it. You know, I've played this for years. I don't have a full grasp on it. There's still secrets to be unlocked. But the daughter just was not satisfied with that as an answer and, you know, begs the mother to express her full thoughts. She does and then is hurt when she does so. Um, Yeah, uh, I'd have to watch through it again knowing, you know, full circle how these people feel to see if I could dig into it a little deeper. But first watch, that's what I took from it. No, I, I'd say you took, you took all, all the, the things um, at the surface that I was going to say. Because I, I, I love that scene because, and again, I think a second watch through really emphasizes it. It's the whole movie. That, that one scene is the whole movie. Um, here you have Liv Ullman doing a thing. You know, and she might not do be doing it right. She might not be. She might be doing it wrong. She, you know, has her own style of doing whatever it is, and it's fine. But she wants to have her mother's perspective on it. You know, like say her childhood, and she finally and her mother's like, no, 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 no. And then when she finally gets her mother to give her expression on it, her take on it, much like when they eventually they have this big blow up argument where she asks her for her perspective on her childhood, Liv Ullman's furious or she's at least mad to some extent. I don't want to say furious. She, mm-hmm. She's definitely upset, which she gets when the mother gives her explanation for her childhood. And I wrote down one line from here um, uh, that, that Ingrid Bergman says it's, it's feel pain, but not show it. Uh, in reference to the emotion that you're supposed to be expressing in this Chopin uh, prelude. And again, that feels like a little encapsulation of the film because so much of Ingrid Bergman's character is facade. So much of it is an outward expression of whatever she's trying to convey, not necessarily how she's actually feeling. You know, she had an outward expression of engagement during Eva's childhood. Because she couldn't tour, and that engagement led to her being way too overly active as a parent. She had um, outward expressions of, uh, uh, like, just covering up her her actual feelings when it came to talking about Leo, or or a fake expression of sympathy when it came to being in the same room as Helena, and. And that's a moment that she was trying, or a, a feeling or a mode of being she was trying to convey about the song that really was truly representative of how she was living her entire life. Yeah. It, there's just so much symbolism and so many powerful scenes. It's just, I love this movie. 
oh, three hours ago i hated you for making me watch it now i am eternally grateful yeah uh, <laughs> I, i'm really 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 glad to hear that and i hope everyone listening treats that as an endorsement to go watch this um <laughs> we could seriously sit here for hours and talk about this movie in, in its minutiae um I think if you've found any part of what we've been saying to be interesting, I I couldn't cannot recommend this film enough. Um, it, I do want to say that if this was an English film, not Swedish, this would be widely talked about as an all time classic. Oh, absolutely, and I mean that's probably one of the reasons. Also, it's it's got such a low gross is because you know foreign films are tougher to distribute in general. Yeah, especially back in the day when. People didn't even know how to read, let alone let alone want it to. God, could you imagine trying to find like a foreign film theater oh, in the God. U.S. at that time? I feel like at the time it would be easier to find a fucking porno theater. Oh, a hundred percent in nineteen seventy eight. Just go to Times Square. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. That, that you you can probably find more foreign pornos <laughs> in New York than you can find actual foreign films. <laughs> Uh, uh yeah but this is um it's one of my favorite movies is is such just a powerful expression of what how one perceives uh themselves their childhood how that mm-hmm. eventually reflects into how one becomes as an adult again i mentioned how um part of who Eva describes herself as being as an adult is very much so reflective upon how she perceived her childhood. And you get a little bit of Ingrid Bergman discussing her own childhood into, into um, their discussions as well. But it, it's really, uh, it's an amazing mother daughter film. Um, and also what's just crazy is that it was written by a man, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not sure if it's sexist to me for being surprised by that, or at least having it be as flawlessly, me thinking of being as flawlessly executed as it was, but it's certainly um, interesting for that reason as well. Ingrid, Ingmar Bergman is a phenomenal writer, and this really um, is such a focal point of that. Um, I can't recommend this enough. Um, I would like to hear if you have any final thoughts and, uh, and your, your star rating, my pal. So just to connect these two movies, this was something I wrote down right at the end of watching this, right before we started. I think both stories are, you're, you're familiar with, you know, the, the narrative plot points of, you know, man versus man, man versus nature, man versus society, man versus himself. Yeah. Yeah. Very common ways to describe narr- or, yeah, narratives. Um, I think both of these are good examples of man versus himself. Um, one moonlight is told through, uh, the story of a man fighting against society's pressures in that aspect. While this was more of man versus himself told through the relationship of mother and child. Um, and I am really glad we watched both of these together as, you know, in a singular episode, just cause I think it's not exactly the deepest parallel. It's not exactly the most accurate parallel, but I think there's enough there where the connection does add something to both of these. Oh, you know, these felt this felt like a great uh back to back for mm-hmm. for film watching. Definitely similar ground covered albeit very different methods. Um love that. Absolutely love it. What would you give it out of 5? I gave this a 4.5 out of 5. Ooh. Um I don't think it's a perfect movie. 
And I just said four and a half and five are for perfect movies. But I think this does have that X factor that brings it from, you know, a four to a four and a half where, you know, if this was a more modern film, if it didn't have the the bookend scenes with the husband giving that dorky monologue, um, little things here and there, I think this would be a perfect movie. But I do want want to reserve that five out of five for the, the cream of the crop. I, I, I can appreciate that. Um, I'm going to give this a five, um, because it, for whatever reason, meets those intangibles for me. Um, I, maybe it's, maybe it's cause I, I, I have seen this enough times that I've, I've gotten, um, a, a good feel on it. Um, maybe there's, I don't know, some deeper part of it that I, I connect with more. I, again, it, it's an intangible I haven't quite yet put my finger on, but I I just adore, adore this movie. So this gets a perfect five from me, um, and I hope everyone watches it. So one other thing, Corwin and I talked about it. Um, it was his idea to give him full credit about picking our f- movies for next week today so that we just have more time to watch them and we're not cramming and if anyone's following along, they have more time to watch them too. So, shall we do that now? Yeah. All right. Um, what are you picking? I am in a big mood to watch something spikely. Uh, just had that feeling the past couple of days. So, might as well pick the best of the best. I'm going to go with Do the Right Thing. Love it. Classic. Can't wait to rewatch it. I'm certainly overdue. Love the choice. Um, I definitely want to take a break <laughs> from. <laughs> um the 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 deep foreign film thing <laughs> so as much as i love doing it and i could definitely just sit here and do it forever but just to force myself to rewatch these uh i'm gonna i'm gonna go in a different direction i'm gonna pick 1982's john carpenter classic the thing Ooh. this is i think this is the first time i've picked a movie that i haven't seen yet uh or that i have seen yet I have have seen so far. Wow, English. It, it took a while this episode, but I finally got there where I fucked something up. Uh, I have seen Doing the Right Thing. I have not seen The Thing, at least. Okay. At least I don't think. Is it the one with, like, the tunneling worms? Tunneling worms. The um, thing. I'm not sure. I don't, I'm going to say no, because I can't remember a scene in which that happens. Um... But I'm gonna look up some images. Yeah, I don't think I've seen this yet. So, well, I'm excited for you to watch. This is um, it's definitely a huge deviation from the last two movies I picked, but it's a it's a horror movie classic. Um, Should I watch this in broad daylight? No, I don't think it, I, it's got really great practical effects, and I think you'll really appreciate them. But it's not like it's not like scary, scary. It's mm. it's more it's a lot of gore. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, we'll be able to talk about it next week. Yeah. Uh, so that is that. Definitely stay tuned for... Uh, uh, I've lost... I had zero train of thought going with that sentence. Look out <laughs> Look out for next week's podcast when we talk about that. Any final thoughts um, on anything we talked about today, Corwin? Nope. All right. Well, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at JuicingPod. If you want to hit us up via email, you can do so at JuicingTheNumbers at gmail.com. And until Monday... Y'all have a good one. Bye.